0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the New Books Network podcast on Jewish Studies. I am your host today, James Nadell, and I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Moss, the Harriet and Ulrich E. Meyer Professor of Jewish History at the University of Chicago. Dr. Moss's first book, Jewish Renaissance in the Russian Revolution, came out in 2009 and examined the works of Eastern European Jewish intelligentsia during the time of the Russian Civil War. His most recent book, which we will be discussing today, An Unchosen People, Jewish Political Reckoning in Interwar Poland, which uh, was published last year uh, by Harvard University Press. Uh, As we will discuss, An Unchosen People follows the transformation of Polish Jewish social thought and political reason in the late 1920s up until the mid 1930s in the face of rising ethno-nationalism and anti-Semitism in Poland during that period. Professor Moss, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks so much. Thanks, James. I'm glad to be here.
0: Great. Uh, so I'll start uh, by just asking how you came to this study in the first place uh, of Polish Jewry in this 1928 to 1935 moment. Uh, why was it in this moment in particular that certain Polish Jews started to describe the situation, their situation in the region? as quote unquote futureless
1: yeah I think that's that there's sort of two ways of answering that question one is to say of course it wasn't only in this period and it was even more the case in the much more obvious period of the late 30s after posutski's death after the sanatya his the, the the inheritors of his movement um tack hard to the right to um to try and draw off you mm-hmm. know the, the support growing for the hard right um, obviously it was there was a great deal of very grim thinking about the the likely uh, unfolding uh, of of the future around Jews in Poland in those years. And in some sense, because this is a book that was interested in new forms of Jewish thought taking shape or efforts to think toward um, clarity about what might be a new situation taking shape around one, I actually discovered that the, um, the much less Viscerally threatening period before Pilsudski's death and the hard right turn of the Synopsia um, is more interesting. You know, is, is, it was a moment when whole sorts of outlooks on the future uh, were to be found amongst Polish Jews. Um, but um, a, a quite disparate group of people, disparate in terms of their ideological commitments, their class background, their relationship to thought, intellectuals, but also ordinary people, um, uh, began to wrestle with um, much. Grimmer possibilities than the sort of muddling through toward some kind of political integration that I think was the general hope of most Polish Jews, and and why that period should have had the that um, that effect in in thought. I mean, I think I, would, I think what's interesting about that period is precisely its mix of rather disparate uh, circumstances. I mean, you have a constellation of a real cultural complexity: Pol- Jewish poles, poles of Jewish background, Jewish poles, Polish Jews are Polonizing very quickly, although they remain quite internally, culturally, uh, you know, varied. Um, uh, Economic disaster, the economic disaster of the Great Depression hits Poland uh, relatively early and very hard. Um, uh, So all sorts of development, hopes about development that you could kind of sustain through a good part of the 20s are suddenly called into question. Um, And, uh, you know, in in sort of waves uh, um, that get larger and larger, um, all sorts of rather uh, increasingly terrifying Political phenomena look to be moving from the from the margins to the mainstream, and not and I want to emphasize not just or even necessarily primarily in Poland per se. Um, one important point that I that I you know that became uh, clear to me in part through the work of um, uh, Landa Czajka and other uh, Polish uh, historians, but also through my own reading, is just how impactful uh, the rise, the rapid rise of Nazism in Germany was for. Polish Jews who who cared to look beyond the specifics of that rise in a German setting and to ask how it is that that a movement committed to um, the total and violent undoing of emancipation achieved uh, could move from the margins to the center so so robustly uh, in a in a society in a polity with um, much higher institutional walls of both liberalism and socialist opposition than Poland could muster so. Um, and then and then a last dimension of this period that's so fascinating to me, and this is also particularly true of the early 30s more than the late 20s, um, is the sudden reemergence at an unprecedented scale, although never as large as it was hoped to be, of a very peculiar possibility of Jewish exit, which is, of course, um, uh, Palestine, which for for their own reasons, the British reopened to Jewish um uh, immigration at a much higher level than it had previously been open, although again much lower than uh, than could have met the the, um, the very robust demand, um, and, and and in a moment when other options for immigration were uh, either legally and practically foreclosed or just essentially you know practically unattainable. So these all these aspects of the, the larger political situation, to me, make this period a kind of forcing bed for a growing number, not everybody, not necessarily almost everybody, but a growing number of Polish Jews, um, to, to begin thinking about uh, sort of what, what, to, first of all, to seek understanding of the linkages of economic crisis, um, majoritarian nationalism, um, populism, democracy uh, as a claim on the state, um, uh, Anti-Semitic enmity—all these things are growing in different ways, intermixing in different ways. And I was interested at the level of intellectual history in people who tried to understand well what what are the relations of these things? Are they taking new forms? Are these new constellations? Um, uh, are, for instance, you know, are forms of um, enmity and rage in new parts of Polish society toward Jews? Um, are they simply a product of the Great Depression? Even if they are a product of the Great Depression, does that mean that they'll sort of they'll go away? when the depression subsides? Uh, what will happen in the meantime? These are kind of questions that emerge precisely in the framework of um, this unusual uh, uh, and confounding constellation of new phenomena. Um, so that's, that's I think, a place to begin that uh, answering that question.
0: Yeah, and it seems uh, this uh, convergence of these various factors really uh, sets this period apart uh, from what came before uh and i was wondering if you could put a fine point on the distinction in the enmity that we're seeing in this period to compare it perhaps to uh similar or um uh, different uh moments of anti-semitism in czarist uh, russia or earlier in uh, the history of the polish republic
1: well, one thing I want to underscore that I, I I work hard to underscore in the book, and I mean, we'll, we'll, you know, one one we'll see what people think, um, and what they and what they take away. But, um, although the question of what is anti-Semitism, is it always effect or also cause? How quickly is it metastasizing? And you know, what does it mean to the people who, in some sense, are being pulled toward it? Although those questions were interesting to and pressing for many of the contemporaries I study, um and are interesting to me, I want to underscore that the political thinking about the sort of prospect that Jews are facing what is likely to be a bad future in Poland, but generally in Europe, that I focus on in this book um, are not in the first instance uh, uh, sort of organized around the question, how much anti-Semitism is there? And is it worse in Poland than anywhere else? And actually most of the figures I study, certainly the intellectuals, Um, appreciate just how complicated the situation is in Poland. Polish political culture was divided, deeply divided. That's part of the issue. Along all sorts of lines, um, Polish nationalism itself was bifurcated between uh, an an increasingly and intensely anti-Semitic right-wing vision and an older, in some ways more established, um, integrative vision that did have a place for Jews. Someone like Pilsudski kind of falls into that category, I think. So uh, one thing I want to underscore is that the For the thinkers I am interested in, for whom I can kind of give some kind of account of the genesis um, of their worries, the worries in the first instance were seldom about intensity of anti-Semitism per se. They were about some growing sense that in a, uh, a new state suffering through developmental problems in an age of ethno-nationalism, um, and populism and new kinds of expectations from society toward the state, um, and and new kinds of metastases of nationalism itself—all um, of these things looked much, at least to the people I'm studying. Not everybody saw this this way, but a lot of them, taken together, looked very dangerous um, because it seemed that they um, that that most of the ways they could break, most of the forms they could take in tandem with each other would mean. A lot of social pressure for the state or society itself to see the Jews as a problem, as an obstacle to the common wheel and the happiness of real poles, if you will, obviously in quotes, Um, uh, and as something that had to be solved, right? As a, as a, uh, you know, the, you know, the, 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 you know, the question, but also problem that had to be solved, and that's not simply in my the, the mind of my thinkers, and I think they're right about this. That's never understood primarily as a function. Of something like uh, the question, how many of this or that um, members of this or that polity are deeply anti-Semitic, as opposed to a little anti-Semitic, as opposed to philosemitic, right? It had to do with a sort of sense that, and and, and you can spin this out a couple different ways. So, uh, several of the thinkers, the analysts I'm interested in, Chapter Four particularly, uh, you know, are are interested in not just the spread of anti-Semitism, but also in what we could call sort of inchoate political science. Um, forms of inquiry, like how many people, how large a minority do you have to have in the society that really does hate group X for, you know, for the, for the balance of control over the range of things, the larger society can and can't consider doing realistically vis-a-vis group X to change, <laughs> um, you know, uh, 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 put, to put that less bloodlessly. When, um, when the Zionist activist Alter Dryanov goes to Poland in late 31, spends about six months there, he, he spends a lot of time talking to different Zionist figures, and he reports um, a, a sharp disagreement amongst the Zionists in Galicia, the, of course, historically the place where Jews were most, a particular group of Jews were most deeply and fully Polonized between those Zionists and Zionist leaders in Warsaw. And the Zionist leaders in Warsaw are sure that, the, that even within Pilsudski's Sanatia, um, real anti-Jewish sentiment is taking greater and greater hold amongst some of the leadership and governing strata. And the Zionists in Galicia don't think this is right. They think that's just, these guys are not anti-Semites. They're, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty inured against that kind of stuff. They're, 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 they're genuine Pilsudskites and so forth. They believe in integration. But Drianim's point is that worrisomely, this is kind of a distinction uh, without a difference if no matter what the attitudes of the policymakers are vis-a-vis Jews, they feel constrained by a larger public pressure to engage in a in a kind of you know, a kind of driving the Jews out of the economy and society politics. Indeed. And there are other oh, dimensions okay. that, that, that I have just scored out for you know, um, there's also a special interest among people I'm studying in anti Semitism in places where it really matters. So amongst amongst young people in the elite. Right, I mean, the universities are a hotbed, as they were in Germany, a hotbed of intense anti-Semitism, as well as a hotbed of interesting kinds of philosemitism or, or you know, mobilized anti-anti-Semitism, but a hotbed of anti-Semitism. And what does that mean when the inheritors of state power over the next ten to twenty years are the fiercest, most committed, and most extreme visionaries of solving the Jewish problem through violence or something robust? Right. That's a question my thinkers had to ask.
0: Yeah. And do you see that yeah. as a fundamentally new complex uh, as compared to, I guess, the uh, the functioning of the imperial state, for instance?
1: I think what's, you know, a couple things are new. I think, yeah, I mean, in general, yes. My sense, for instance, of the of the Russian intelligentsia was that um, and here I'm just following, you know, this is very. I think mean, this is fairly clear. There, there certainly were robust and increasingly baroque versions of, of anti-Jewish sentiment in parts of the Russian intelligentsia, but on the whole, very clearly, um, you know, it. And this is reflected especially in what happens around in the nineteen oh five revolution. Um, very clearly, larger and larger parts of the Russian intelligentsia and the whole realm of sort of educated society involves just the. Had come to recognize that you know antisemitism was one of the one, of the many forms of um, reaction in the arsenal of uh, a tsarist authoritarian regime that they generally understood as as an obstacle to their own happiness. So, you know, um, the great the late great historian Jonathan Frankel makes this point that that the violence of antisemitic you know the the intensity of antisemitic violence in 1905 1906 in many Russian cities. Um, in sort of the great wave of pogroms was off the charts, unprecedented relative to anything come before. But it didn't generate the same kinds of despair amongst many Jews because so clearly it was linked to a rightist counter-revolutionary project, um, and and it was so clearly counterbalanced by more and more of Russian society um, recognizing that this was that this kind of anti-Semitism was was part of the problem, not part of the solution. I think mean, it's very different to think about the situation of a minority in a polity increasingly shaped by ethno-nationalism and committed from the get-go, and this is certainly not true only of Poland, we can think about a lot of other examples, for for some very close to home in Jewish studies, um, a polity committed to the special needs, so-called, of the real nation, whatever else it thinks about other citizens in its in its frame. And in that sense, if we want to look for um, a pre-1918 version that I wish I could have thought more about, I don't really say anything about it in this, but I think it's worth, it's a, it's a kind of frontier worth studying. I I think we might want to look back to um, late 19th century Romania as a long-term story of um, nationalists in power who um, just can't quite escape feeling that the Jews are a, a, a real problem and and have to be treated as a as a socio political problem, although you can vary your views of how one ought to approach that.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's turn to some of uh, these thinkers that you studied uh, and their process of, as you put it at certain points in the book, groping uh, for solutions in uh, the situation in Poland. Um, certain figures like Uriel Weinreich and Jacob. Lechczynski and Chaim Grade come up time and again in in the book. And I wonder if you could describe uh, some of uh, their analyses of the situation, uh, how they changed over the course of their intellectual life, um, and where else, to what other minority issues they looked to try to better grasp what they were experiencing.
1: Yeah. Let me... I mean, these are these are figures very close to my heart. I do want to also note, I mean, in some ways, it's, inter- it's interesting that our discussion, and this is close to my heart too, has kind of hewed to the, let's call it the more formally intellectual history dimensions of the project, the kind of middle of the book. Um, I would want to note sort of, and maybe I should have taken a big step back, how m- much the book is actually an effort to find forms of thinking happening not only in formal settings of inquiry, um, analytical journalism, sociology, if you will, but also amongst ordinary people. And what all these folks share, before I turn to some of these, you know, very, these intellectuals that we we know something about, um, what the folks share, the folks I, who kind of come into my viewfinder share is um, a twofold growing recognition. First, and we've talked about this part of it, that it's more and more reasonable to think that the futures, the likely futures facing Polish Jewry are are unhappy ones for the most part. But also, and this is going to be important for thinking about this or the, the last part of the book, which in some ways I think is the heart of the book, um, which turns from thought to politics, if you will, they also are lab- the grappling with um, a new sense that a lot of their previous and longstanding assumptions about Jewish collective political capacities to substantially affect their situation um, through through self organization through politics um may have been strongly overstated and in fact Jews may have very little collective power to substantially shape much less avert any of the bad futures that um that that seem reasonably you know uh uh likely so that's one that's a, a lar- and so and, and then within that i look at you know crudely speaking ordinary people and intellectuals and here let's turn to some of the intellectuals that you ask about because that's those Recognitions are the double framework for a lot of their thought. Their thought, the thought of figures like Max Weinreich, uh, Jacob Leszczynski, and others, their thought, I think, in turn, is best understood as bifurcating between two two basic questions. What is all of this doing to us, to the Jews, psychologically, socially, culturally? Um, uh, and then, on the other hand, what, what is, what's going on in the larger society? Um, and crudely speaking, chapter three is sort of about folks who ask themselves, what sort of impact is this sense of prolonged of exclusion, likely bad futures, and um, and and in forms of despair and hopelessness? What sort of impact is this having on on our community and and its culture and its political options, its capacity to imagine political options? Um, and then chapter four looks at often very similar folks, although more of them Zionists than, Zionist than diasporists. Uh, we could talk about that distinction if you like. Who, um, who instead are asking the kind of questions we sort of led our discussion with? What's going on in the larger society, both Polish and, let's say, more generally modern European? And these vis the former, the folks thinking about what this is, what what is becoming of us under these circumstances. One of the figures you mentioned was, in some ways, you know, my kind of Virgil, if you want to evoke a very un-Jewish uh, intertext. As I entered this uh, project, I spent a lot of time with him. And in some ways, I had to leave him behind at a certain point because I think his thought limits itself to this question: What is going on inside um, Jewish, the Jewish community, a Jewish community increasingly shot through with a sense of being targeted for um, extrusion? And this is this figure, Max Weinreich, a figure uh, who is, you know, the great pioneer certainly a great pioneer of serious uh, Yiddish linguistic philology, a person who, if he'd been left alone by history, um, would have devoted all of his life to what he started his life, his intellectual adult life with, which was um, um, intense Yiddishist effort of the sort that I focus on a lot in my first book. You know, he's a um, a figure who appears at the margins of my first book as as a young man he undertakes to translate uh, chapter nine of uh, Homer's Iliad. Uh, the Wine, Dark Sea chapter, uh, and parts of the Gilgamesh epic into Yiddish. And, and what this reflects is uh, a wonderfully um, intense, but actually quite typical, you know, sort of Yiddishist vision that Jews have it in their hands to define who they are as a nation. The nation is a general regulative concept here, albeit in a very progressive mode uh, that doesn't have to do with statehood, but has to do instead with forms of um taking one's traditional culture and cultural inheritances and turning them into new secular forms of human creativity with one's own language, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, you know, this is his, he's the, he's the founding figure and guiding figure of the Evo Institute. But then at a certain point as Barbara Christian back Gimlet and others helped us understand really already about, you know, 20 years ago, uh, maybe more, he, he takes a hard turn toward a strange sort of, um, project of self retraining in, um, in, uh, uh, social psychology. Um, and this is linked at the root to a hard turn toward being very, very interested, unsurprisingly, actually, in understanding better what the younger generation of Polish Jews take to be their own situation. He, this, by the way, this is a guy who's the father of two adolescent boys right, in this mm-hmm. period. so um, uh, And he initiates this famous uh, Jugendforschung, youth research project, he initiates the project that collects hundreds of autobiographies in all three languages of Polish Jewish life—Yiddish, uh, Polish, and Hebrew—and um, he's the first to really try and actually look at these autobiographies, the ones from thirty-two and thirty-four, and figure out what's going on. And what he actually says once he finishes, sort of clearing his throat in the first hundred pages of a very long book, he writes about this uh, is, you know, holy crap, uh, you know, these these kids are really. The, the main phenomenon you find when you look, if you figure out one, if there's one phenomenon that he sees in a lot, but not all of these autobiographies, it's deep despair about the future uh, and a sense that one's Jewishness uh, is bad fate, right? Um, and you can see him, I mean, he doesn't like this and he spends a lot of the book he writes about it called Jugend, mobile and this is a point that Barbara Kirchenblatt-Gimlet makes so well, mobilizing various kinds of um, uh, uh sort of youth psychology models to argue that a lot of this is bad thinking. It's compensatory. It's people, you know, um, it's, it's, in it, it itself is a problem because if you despair, you can't wrestle realistically with life and all this stuff. Yeah, that's, but right in the middle of all of this, before he pivots to kind of indicting the youth for a, a despair that itself is sort of undermining, he, um, he begins to investigate, you know, what kind of thing is this to imagine yourself, um, uh, 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 part of a immiserated minority targeted by the majority society, or at least a substantial part of it, for some kind of extrusion in ways that look like, you know, at best they'll be interminable, right? I mean, he doesn't really flirt very strongly with the idea they might be terminable, but they'll at best they'll be a lot. This will be a sort of a, a siege, um, and he starts to ask himself questions he'd never asked before, like, is does this mean that Jews in Eastern Europe are more like? German Jews, or for that matter, African-Americans, particularly middle-class African-Americans, than they are like normal nations, to use Weinreich's own terms. Um, and he, he, in a very fraught and very problematic way, begins seriously to, to try and know something about African-American life, uh, particularly that of the, you know, the, the folks that Du Bois and others would call the talented 10th, the people who do have access to um, uh, institutions of higher education and so forth, but who are living in this milieu which tells them constantly and not just tells but but shows them constantly that they're not they're not allowed in for when push comes to shove that of course much worse than that in many ways and, and you can see him wrestling he doesn't like this comparison um, he'd rather uh, be able to dismiss this comparison but he starts to develop a, a conceptual language that begins to ask whether Polish Jews are vectoring on something like the German Jewish situation of not really having any compensatory, Certainty in their own capacities for positive difference and self-determination, but are instead a new kind of what he uses the um, the peculiar term in this setting that that we now use in Hebrew, miut, miut, and that they suffer from miutishkeit or miutimshaft, which I've translated as minorityhood and minoritieshood, and you know to even make these comparisons um, marks a, a real shift for someone who had entered the interwar period absolutely convinced that that Jews were a normal nation indeed that they were a they could be a beacon of what normal nationhood should be um you know which meant cultural self-determination without the nasty political parts of it um and and that kind of thinking struck me as um you know worth thinking through even though I don't know that how far he's able to take it i mean he's he's so torn about even making the comparison that he that he he can't even when pushing himself, he can't even tell his reader if he thinks it is actually the case that Polish Jews are more and more like, or the situation there is more and more like that of African Americans uh, within the world of you know violent white supremacy. It just he uh, he even says, and there's a, um, um, whether this condition applies to Polish Jews, I will not say. <laughs> but here's here's all sorts of ways in which clearly it doesn't. Not right. This is the, a very strange kind of thinking, but one I wanted to
0: try out. Maybe it makes sense then to uh, compare it to someone who was uh, a little bit more uh, forthright, perhaps, in uh, facing that conclusion. Uh, The Yiddish poet and novelist Chaim Grade, you mention in the book that he kind of embarks on this project of writing uh, poetry that will act as some sort of uh, fortifying element, uh, for Jews facing a sense of powerlessness in Poland. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the aesthetics of that poetry and how it, uh, differs or is similar to, um, the poets and cultural activists that you studied in your first book or other, uh, Jewish artists and writers that you've encountered.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also want to begin by, you know, um, as as in every in every book, um, you you, have, you you accumulate a lot of debts, and I want to note that um, this recognition of Grata's the peculiarity of Grata's undertaking and some of its terms, I owe uh, I owe the starting points of that to uh, Justin Cami and Avram Noverstern. Um, Cami notes that the Grata talks about and structures his whole, you know, much of his first book project, although. It's a complicated story um, around some notion of, of, a, of a kind of psychically reparative, reparative um, uh, poetics. I think, I mean, in some ways to think about the, the aesthetics of that, um, I found it helpful to think with another poet of the time who doesn't fall so squarely into the same project, although maybe she does more than than I had a chance to think through, which is um, Deborah Fogel. Um, a figure who's you know, rightly drawn a lot of interest recently from a lot of different angles. Uh, Alison Schachter and and uh, my own colleague Anna Torres and others are studying her. And she has some interesting thoughts about uh, that sort of look a little bit like um, Russian formalist thoughts about defamiliarization and the ways in which writers can make new um, certain kinds of notions through um, through aesthetic experimentation, but she's particularly interested in ways in which this can be done for children. There's an interesting moment that she's writing in the 30s about, um, you know, about the kind of ways in which certain kinds of children's books operate better than others to um, convincingly embody in aesthetic form, um, forms of imagination about the world for kids that obviously she likes, like uh, forms of tolerance toward others who are different. Uh, forms of identification with others uh, across across differences. Um, you know, I, I think, so what I got interested in was Grada looking for the same kind of effects um, directed not at children, but at really at his fellow young, young uh, uh, Vilna and Vilna area and Polish Jews. Uh, um, um, I think one way to think about his est- I'm not sure that I have a, uh, that. there's a useful way to sort of distill a particular aesthetics, but I do think that one, one way to think about this is what is not, what he couldn't allow himself. Um, and I open that chapter, which is chapter three, by looking at a figure who um, stands in stark contrast, this figure, Hirsch Gutgestalt, uh, a minor poet by any measure, who writes this very kind of, you know, he's a Bundist, a, a, a very active Bundist, and he writes this very Bundisty, socialist, revolutionary poetry, right? In the same period, that's sort of Sorelian in its vision, you know, we're, we're, um, you know, let us all break our chains and march in, you know, march in the masses that will free the world and will burn down the old world and all this stuff, right? There's a kind of, there's a kind of shorthand of self organizing, uh, the sublime of sort of the, the, you know, of, of liberatory violence, uh, a conviction that we are powerful in masses. Um, Right, all this stuff finds its aesthetic form in ways that I think are not terribly surprising, although they they might have been very moving for some readers. Um, And, you know, Grada shares the same politics. He's a, you know, he's clearly, broadly speaking, at least a lowercase s socialist, he understands human freedom and human oppression in terms that make sense in a broadly Marxian frame. But he just doesn't think that Jews should talk themselves into the foolish notion that they as a group are going to have any kind of real impact on where all this, what he calls the Weltkatastrophen are going. And so if you can't do that, if it's dishonest to do that, and I think that's where he ends up, you have to you have to ask if poetics can simply be a kind of litany of disaster, right? He, he does have this notion in a lot of poetry that the poet's task is kind of the, 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 the prophetic task in the darkest sense of the biblical narratives to sort of just help force people to face how bad things are. <laughs> but he doesn't... He doesn't abide in that, and he tries to find something like a um, uh, new mythic ways of thinking uh, about—he tries to provide resources for the reader to imagine him or herself as something other than um, subjected to catastrophe. and he does this in, in ways that I think are so so idiosyncratic that I'm not sure you want to call them anesthetics. They're his sort of the Gradian. You know, he he reaches for ideas about um uh biological evolution to kind of give some sense of the ascending ladder of uh life as itself a vouchsafe of the humanity and worth of people, no matter how badly they are treated by history. Um and I think what the only thing you really say about this more generally as an aesthetics is that. It depends on recognizing that poetry can't move people to effective action because there is no effective action to be taken. What it might be able to do is offer um, a different way of relating to one's own experience.
0: Yeah, that was what I thought was so uh, fascinating about both uh, Grada's poetry and the poetry of uh, uh, a Yiddish author that I've translated, Avram Sutzkever, that there's this sense of transfiguration you mentioned in in the book, uh, trying to um, have a different perspective on the objective facts of the situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I you know it, it helped me to think about that, in, in, in you know, for sure. So I mean, Sutskyver in some ways is the he's the figure that I mean I I, I and I admire your translations of discover by the way. I mean he 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 clearly is. Better at convincing himself of this and convincing others of it in his poetry than God So in some ways, you know, I, I wish I could have spent more time with Sutzkever. He's a little too young, you know, and he started. But of course, in some ways, he is the great um, bearer of this vision, even under the most extraordinary circumstances. To such a degree that, you know, as Weiss and other readers of Sutzkever pointed out, that you know, during the Holocaust, his poetry um, sometimes dares to insist that um it actually is salvific or at any rate that if one gives up on it then one has given up on one's own self-salvation right it's like, anyway he and, and he and he um you know he writes incredibly moving poetry um that reassures one of one's own worth <laughs> so that's very much a i think that's sort of what grotto was up to um i think francisco you know does it under even more extreme circum far more extreme circumstances and and is it you know, a better poet when push comes to shove. So, yeah. um, but, but that's a, a, a
0: discussion for a different time. Maybe. It's exciting to see that project, um, uh, you know, uh, continue, uh, even under, as you said, those extreme and obviously worsening, uh, circumstances. Um, so I, I, as you mentioned earlier, this is not just the province of, you know, published intellectuals and, uh, famous artists in the the canon. But as you said, this kind of uh, groping and uh, um, intellectual change is existing on a much broader social level. Um, you talk about several times in the book about uh, a movement of many Polish Jews uh, to some sort of affiliation with Zionism during this period. Um, although, as you say, not necessarily an ideological Zionism, but what you call a vernacular one. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that distinction? What did it mean to be a vernacular Zionist? And uh, in what ways were Polish Jews both uh, interested in uh, Zionism and wary of it at, at the same time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much uh, I want to stake on the on the term vernacular Zionism. I mean, I I move amongst a variety of terms, all of them with some kind of grounding in contemporary discourse, but all of them also quite distant from the actors themselves, and all of them driven by by more basic sense. Because the others that you see me kind of kick around in the book are um, Palestinianism, Yishuvism. Um, I'll come back to what I why I think it's useful to sort of bracket a, a phenomenon with these multiple terms, but But the key to start with is the the empirical baseline of this is, as you say, um, there is a massive um, engagement with and an even much more massive penumbra of interest in Zionism on the part of um, what can only be described as hundreds of thousands of Polish Jews, but I try and lay out why that's the right number to think with. Um, um. many of whom, and by most accounts, most of whom, and then talking about the early 30s now, had previously had no connection to any of the worlds of organized Zionism. So one of the things I try and do in chapter two of the book, which is sort of in some ways the most social historical, kind of a social history of changing, of, of political searching, political skepticism, political thinking, and then I try and take up in more intellectual history terms, but from below, from talking about sort of ordinary people, in later parts of the book, I mean, one of the you know one of the things i do as a baseline is i try and understand obviously there were people who were very who in their zionism were very committed to various visions uh positive visions if you will the you know the, the actual programs of various zionisms you know the creating of the new jew uh cultural regeneration a cult of labor in the case of labor zionism a cult of um you know the strong jewish body and militancy and case of revisionist Zionism and arguably also labor Zionism, right? There all these things are, there are plenty of people who think this, but they're, you know, they're, a, they're a substantial minority, but by no means a majority. And then suddenly you get this influx of folks in the 30s, and all the evidence, all the evidence shows that a substantial majority or at least a plurality of them had never had connections to Zionism before. So there's a poll of members of the Hegelutz movement in 1930. I have to try to remember exactly. Yeah, 32, I think, which finds that 60% of the members had never had any connection to any of the institutions of organized Zionism before, Hebrew schools, Zionist organizations, Zionist youth groups. Um, and all of this is, is played out in all kinds of qualitative sources as well. So you have this wonderful uh, autobiography by a, a young man who complains that he wants to make and he's saying, I'm quoting, he wants to make Aliyah to, the, to Eretz to the land of Israel. That is, he, he's thinking, he's a real Zionist, but all his friends who've joined the movement just want to, and again, I quote, emigrate to Palestine. Um, so so part of what I try to do in the book, uh, again, building on very important work by other people, by, um, uh, um, uh, by Oppenheim's important work in Hebrew on echalutz by the work of a, a young scholar uh, and friend, uh, Ronayona, um, um the work of Kamil Kiech and Dan Heller, it's, it's just, you know, once just try to make sense of what's driving these folks into Zionism, but much more important than that, because ultimately I think the answer is all sorts of things are driving them towards Zionism, economic despair, political fear, all these the same things that are driving them in general towards skepticism about all of the old ideas on offer are the things driving them to look to get out. That, that in some sense strikes me as analytically straightforward and hard to go any further than that. I think what's interesting to, it, beyond that is to ask Two things. One, what is the larger political cultural shift that this turn toward Zionism by previously unaffiliated people reflects? Um, and part of the answer to that is a larger shift toward great skepticism about the political, the alternative political sensibilities and 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 projects on offer. And part of the chapter two traces what seems to me a lot of evidence of mass outflux from socialist diasporist organizations, assimilationist circles, even Hasidic circles toward these kinds of Zionist affiliation, Um, um, even as obviously many people don't leave those camps. And then beyond that, I try in chapter five to to think phenomenologically, if you will, and sociologically about what I think of as a new culture of inquiry, in which more and more people are increasingly skeptical about all of the versions of all the mythic Sensibilities on offer on the part of all of the different competing Jewish political programs, including Zionism. One of the things that really was important for me was to find in the Shlichim sources, the sources of um, uh, uh, you know uh, emissaries sent by sent from Palestine or sometimes mobilized locally by organized labor and Kibbutz Zionism to get a handle on all these young people flowing into the Hachaluts movement and, and and to guide them toward proper ideological sensibility. And one of the things these shlichim, the more discerning amongst them, are struck by and report on in interesting ways and in complicated ways but clear ways is how many of the young people who join the Zionist movements that they're looking at are not only not convinced of, not given over to Zionist visions of self-transformation and all the sort of, you know, all the singing and dancing, um, literally and figuratively, but um, but are actually quite skeptical of those coming to Zionism with questions. They're not just desperate, nor are they ideologues. They have questions. And one of the things is, that I found in source the, some of the few sources that let us go more sociologically and phenomenologically more, more deeply than that is young people recognizing exactly the same thing, saying, look, the number of people who really believe in any of the um, the full-fledged programs and myths is declining, and it's small. Most of the people in any of the political camps, at least the young people, are asking questions. They they know that nobody has any good answers. At least Zionism, this comes back to your initial question, gives them some shot, lets them get in line for a possibility of getting out. And even when they join these Zionist organizations, they are asking questions about what uh, if anything, is true in the in Zionist claims about the yeshuv, Palestine itself, Jewish life in Palestine itself, as different and better, if one can get to it, uh, than what probably awaits an individual Jewish young person uh, in the European diaspora. Uh, and those kinds of sensibilities of looking for real information, asking skeptical questions, thinking practically about what uh, resources are available to you to change your your circumstances, those strike me as, um, an, I mean, I think they're a very important part of a shift in the political culture. Um, and they're very much at the heart of and found within and driving um, uh, this strange and interesting expansion of engagement with Zionism.
0: It's really fascinating to hear you talk about this kind of uh, thought pattern that seems to transcend the political silos that I think, you uh, the historiography sometimes places different Jews in Eastern Europe. You know, there's books about Bundists, there's books about Zionists, there's books about uh, diasporists. All of these things. It seems to me more difficult to see uh, the people who are moving in between these camps or are mm-hmm. trying to uh, are elaborating ideas that uh, are not as easily categorized in in any one of them. I wonder what is the what is the uh, process like, the methodology of finding that sort of uh, supra political uh, uh, sort of thought,
1: um, or maybe maybe interstitial, yeah, thought interstitial or, you uh, use in
0: the book. So, yeah. is did this start as a book about one political camp, and then you realized it's uh, the the pattern is everywhere, or? do you do you just try to look everywhere
1: (laughs) it's the latter it didn't start that way at all it started as a book that i mean i suppose it started with some presumption of a of of the value of looking across multiple i never thought to myself i want to write about the ists Mm -hmm. the this is or the that is uh in this book whereas you know my first book when Push came to shove i mean i i knew i wanted to write about hebraists and yiddishists you know like uh, um uh and then I discovered, I, th- I think I discovered that that period was a particularly interesting place to think about them and what they were trying to do. Um, but in this case, you know, I, I the book started as a, um, with a very broad gauged and very cultural historical question, how did East European Jews in the interwar period, living in new nation states, wrestle with um, sort of the cultural horizons that the nation as something that might include them but also might exclude them would mean for them. It was something very cultural historical like that. It took me a very long time to realize that my interest actually lay in um, new forms of thought about one's political circumstances and about how to understand the world um, uh, of uh, a world of political possibilities and dangers. Um and and there was no there was no um sort of aha uh-huh archive where I, I found all my answers and it took me a long, I mean this is, we all have excuses for why it takes us so long, those of us that take so long. Uh, but you know, th- I think my excuse, insofar as there's a legitimate one is it really did take a you know, this was a, a research process that involved gluing together lots and lots and lots of tiny pieces. I mean, it really is a mosaic of sources. There were a couple places that helped that, you know a couple archival finds that helped me snap my thinking into place. So one of them was to go to Max Weinreich's archive because I was interested in him as a, as a Yiddishist thinker, uh, under the sort of cultural historical rubric, and then finding in there this amazing response by this figure, a young figure named, calls himself Benjamin, Benjamin Reisch. He, he's one of the 600 auto, youth autobiographers, but uniquely, he also wrote a response to Weinreich's analysis of his generation and the sources they had provided. And that just happens to be sitting in Max Weinreich's archive at the Evo Institute. And at that, to find that, to find a young person saying, you know, your categories are wrong. We're all skeptics. Uh, the true believers, there are very few of them. Um, uh, the real story is something else it's desperation and searching. That that struck me. I mean, I, that was a, a turning point. The other turning point, I can't remember which came first, was to go to the archives of the Yad Tabenkin Institute uh, for, you know, kibbutz, the kibbutz movement uh, at um, uh, Ramat Ephal in Israel. And, you know, to find that the shlichim, when you go inside the archives of these emissaries, you know, 75% of what they write is, if you'll forgive me, sort of kibbutz movement claptrap. Mm-hmm. But 25% is them reflecting out loud as they write these reports home to the, to the, you know, to uh to the to to, to Bank and others, reflecting on the strangeness of what they're finding inside and around all these newly minted, you know, these, these newly expanded Zionist organizations, and and their their reflection on. What they're finding totally connects to what that figure Benjamin um, was telling Weinreich from a very different uh, cultural position, which was to say, these young people are, not all of them, but not a negligible number of them, are groping for understanding. They don't believe any of the ideologies anymore. They don't think there are any blueprints. They're worried, but they're not just panicking or something like that, a kind of trope you can find both in contemporary writing and I think too often in scholarship. They're asking hard questions. They want to know the answers, uh, and they think they're in a position where, um, you know, they're really in trouble, and and that um, easy answers uh, and, uh, and and ideological nostrums are not the way out of that trouble, if there is any, and they're not even sure of that. So that you know, to discover that to me was really important, um, and it you know resonated too with uh, with. Uh, our own circumstances today, (laughs) to be perfectly frank about it.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about uh, that a bit. Um, There's been kind of, in the last four or five years, several books about uh, Eastern European Jewish life after World War I uh, that are trying to, I think, uh, capture the lived experience, the daily lived experience uh, of anti-Semitism in an ethno-nationalism in that period, uh, between World War One and, and the Holocaust. Um, uh, several come to mind, including, uh, Elisa Bemperad's, uh, Legacy of Blood, um, Jeffrey Weidlinger's recent In the Midst of Civilized Europe. Um, and I wonder, uh, do you have a sense of, this uh set of books as a trend in the historiography or that it will be viewed as such in retrospect uh, and to what extent um in your own thinking uh was were your conclusions affected by um the past several years in american history
1: yeah well, it's a lot easier for me to answer the second question yeah. anyway, i think very much so, you know. I, um, I I'll note only passing you know, all the, in addition to the, the you know the important books you mentioned. I I, I will just um, sort of give American or English speaking listeners uh, uh, a heads up that um uh, a young uh Polish everyone's young at this point to me, but a, a Polish scholar I reflect I respect very very much and whose first book shaped this book deeply. A friend named Kamil Kijak, uh, is now doing um, equally important work on. Um, uh, a deep uh social and a s- cultural history of um Polish and Jewish political consciousness in the Kilts region. Kielts region. Uh and some of the first fruits of that were I think are really uh, bid fair to transform our take on how deep and how real not the experience of anti-semitism per se were although that was happening, but you know just the the this, the the ways in which um Real people on an everyday level, real Jewish people, were encountering um, amongst their peers real discourses that viewed them as the problem, um, and I think that's you know that that is something that I saw a little bit in some of the autobiographies, uh, and um, there's there's a lot more to say there, um, and and I think Kamel's book is going to be really important, really important. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, look, I mean, I I, I think. Uh, I mean, we all it, there's a there's a double sidedness to the old adage, um, which is undeniably true. I guess that we're always historians are always writing a history of the present. I mean, sometimes I think that means we 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 denigrate our own efforts in the sense we think well we're really just reflecting a set of concerns today and everything will be different in ten years and so then the history will be different too. I've never been particularly partial to that view. I don't think that's really true. Um, I think the present, you know, like Weber thought, I think the present can force us to think about things uh, and therefore allow us to see things that really did happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I you know uh, I think um, one of the things that helped me think about um, the problem of how people start to think about their own situation when they realize their previous categories of analysis and their previous expectations might have been wrong, that problem was brought home to me by by the ways in which we I think have all discovered that whatever politics, uh, you know, a lot of expectations coming into this decade uh, or the the past 10 years have been, we're forced to reconsider, forced to reconsider things like how fast do politics of enmity um, reshape political life? Um, How strong are liberal institutions uh, of rights and tolerance? These are questions that, you know, um, we're not imposing on the past. They're, they're imposed on us by the present. And when we go back armed with that, we, Start to see things that I think really were there. So I I unapologetically and unhappily, mm-hmm. I'd much rather not have been forced to think this, I would say that the the you know, the era we're in, not just in the US, but globally, has very much forced, you know helped me see these things. Although I also want to underscore the differences that I, mean, I also think, you know, the the world of middleman minorities in newly developing nation states is a different, is a particular kind of world. Um Uh, And I don't know that the general sociology of um, sort of the politics of rage, hate, and enmity that we now live with goes all the way, I mean, fits entirely with the situation I wanted to study. Um, But it helped me see um, that you could have a sort of history of thought groping or looking for new purchase because its bearers feel, recognize, and feel strongly that their previous categories have proven inadequate to their situation.
0: And we sort of, we see in the final chapter that this, uh, um, this groping that you're discussing, uh, goes so far as to place, uh, Jewish communal or national life in the future as an almost secondary concern to just, uh, survival, um. And I was wondering if you could uh, describe what you think the consequences of that uh, conclusion uh, were for Jewish collectivity at the time, certainly, and maybe subsequently, um, if there is any uh, effect of that particular uh, mode of thought in that moment uh, that it had on yeah. subsequent uh, conceptions or models of, uh, Jewish collectivity.
1: Yeah. I I mean, it's hard for me to answer the second. It's a question that's been raised to me a number of times and I, you know, um, in in a number of different formulations, one of the most, um, wrenching and interesting those formulations, I I think Scott Uri asked me this years ago and, um, uh, 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 um, uh, Siona, whose name I'm blocking, uh, uh, your fellow um, uh, uh, graduate student in Jewish history uh, at uh, Harvard asked me this question, uh, is, you know, um, um, did did those who left Poland for Palestine under these circumstances, did this kind of um, um, non-ideological, let's call it yeshuvism, did it breed greater political decency when they got there? <laughs> um, uh, vis-a-vis Palestinians and Palestinian aspirations and rights. And I have no answer to that. I, My sad gut sense is that it probably didn't. I mean, not, not certainly not systematically so. It may have done the opposite. I mean, that you know, the um, there's a very interesting and, um, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, gr- 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 unsettling uh, moment in a very interesting Palestine travelogue by this figure named um, Yosef Chernikov, Uh, um, uh, a longtime diaspora, uh, territorialist, uh, but with a complex relationship to to Zionism. And he goes in 33, and one of the things he finds is, and he notes, um, is uh, uh, sort of hard right politics about, you know, expelling Palestinians and this and that, um, um, taking shape amongst uh, some of the recent uh, migrants. Now, conversely, you know, a figure like um, uh, figure I discovered late in this project a really fascinating figure named um, uh, Lockerman, uh, who's sort of a a kind of zealig of, uh, of 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 progressive communal activism in in Vilna all through the 10s and 20s. He's sort of active in every organization, working to better Jewish life on the ground. He's a very committed Yiddishist, um, but he ultimately decides to leave for Palestine um, for the sake of his family. Um, his son Ezra Lahad will later on become uh, both very much inside the Israeli secular Zionist uh, sort of mode, uh, I guess lifelong military career, but also a very committed um, Yiddishist by his own lights and a kind of scholar of Yiddish theater. Um, And and Lahad writes shortly after the war uh, about why his father made this choice. And he says, look, my dad just saw no future for us um, in Poland. And for him, this was a terribly wrenching and, and, you know, in many ways, very sort of self-destructive undertaking because he basically left behind all of his cultural hopes to come to Palestine. Um, he made a very hard choice, a very clear choice between all the things he cared about as far as Jewishness was concerned, Jewish culture was concerned on the one hand, and the um, needs of his children on the other, right? And that, that kind of, of calculus, uh, I think loomed larger and larger in, as I, as I um, did the research. And I got more and more convinced that part of the story that had to be told about um, a transform transformation in, in, in political culture, but also in, in a way of thinking, um, had a lot to do with um, a sense that probably one could not preserve all or even most of the things one cared about. That, or at least one had to start thinking in those terms, that maybe a lot of one's hopes had to be set aside uh, and much more practical questions about what resources one had to affect one's life or that of one's children had to be asked. And that was a, a form of thinking totally in tension with all of the great ideological projects of Jewish modernity. Um, and 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 to even renounce the notion that one that one can do much for most Jews, I mean, that really is striking. And this figure, Ben Rish, I Rish, um, made reference to, and looms very large in the last part of the book. I mean, he says quite explicitly in his answer to Weinreich, um, or maybe it's in his autobiography, I have to remember, Uh, he says, you know, Zionism cannot help most Polish Jews. Nothing can. Nothing can. There's no medicine for everybody, and we're not going to find one. Uh, And no matter what you do, you're not going to find one. And in the meantime, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what can help at least some of us? <laughs> and um, you know, I think he's probably very uncomfortable asking that question. I can't ask him, but that's my sense that it's a it's a very discomforting notion uh, that you just have to renounce hopes of helping the community as a whole.
0: Well, I think that's uh, a good place to end the conversation. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Moss. Uh, we really appreciate uh, hearing about your new book, and uh, we hope that our listeners will go out. And uh, get a copy as soon as possible.
1: Well, thanks so much for uh, taking this uh, time. And I've really enjoyed our discussion. Great questions. And, uh, and thanks to the listeners for listening.